Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm going to be your host here for the next year, now that uh, we have successfully completed our fun drive. Over 200 of our fellow saloners have chipped in to ensure another year of podcasts from here in the salon. And to them, we all owe a great big thank you. And I'll have more to say about the fun drive after we first listen to today's talk, which is one that I think you're going to get a lot out of. What I'm about to play for you is a talk that Paul Daly gave at the 2013 Palenque Norte Lectures. Paul, as you will hear, is the person who is completing some of Sasha Shulgin's research and who has been one of the key individuals responsible for preserving the enormous intellectual legacy of Dr. Shulgin, who, in my opinion, is the greatest research chemist to have lived during my own lifetime. And I'll be back after Paul's talk to say a little bit more about Sasha as well. And uh, I'm sure that you're going to learn some things about our dear Sasha that you didn't know before. Also, I hope that you pay attention to the trajectory of Paul's involvement with Dr. Shulgin and see if possibly there may be ways for you to insert yourself into the world of psychedelic research as well. So now let's join Pez as he introduces Dr. Daly. All right. I'm very excited to introduce our next speaker. We have Dr. Paul Daly here with us. And uh, Paul is the lead research chemist at the Alexander Shulgin Research Institute, uh, otherwise known as the Shulgin Farm. <laughs> um, so he's going to give us a, uh, a quick update, 90 minutes, <laughs> on all the happenings that are going on there. N 90 minutes is not quick by anybody's standards. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being here with us, Paul. Glad to have thank you. Thank you. So the, the talk that I'm going to uh, try to string together here is uh, about my friend Sasha Shulgin. Uh, now, I met Sasha. He's the fellow on the... He's the wild-looking guy on the far left there. Uh, I, I met him about 36 years ago at a, at a meeting. I was a freshly minted uh, graduate student in uh, entomology at uh, UC Berkeley. And uh, I showed up down there uh, you know, freshly thinking that, oh, I was going to put all my, my psychedelic interests aside and focus on being an environmental scientist and, and uh, you know, get down into hard agriculture, uh, agricultural research. And then I, I ran into a copy of the Berkeley Barb with an ad that uh, uh, was announcing the second international conference on hallucinogenic mushrooms. And I looked at the ad and I thought, well, I, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be a button-down young scientist here. I, I can't go traipsing off to Washington State to go talk about hallucinogenic mushrooms as much as I love the things. And so I thought, well, I can't do that. And then a couple of weeks went by and the bar published the same ad again. And I said, I, I looked at the speakers. Well, it was going to be Albert Hoffman, Richard Evan Schultes, and... Gordon Wasson and you know people whose work I'd read for for probably the previous ten years, and uh, I, it all of a sudden occurred to me, well, there's no way I can't be at that meeting, and I was kind of shocked to even think that there were such things as meetings that where people talked about psychedelic drugs openly. So I I bought myself a ticket, hustled myself up there, and uh, at the first social, 
I got my uh, obligatory glass of cheap red wine and uh, a couple pieces of cheese, and walked up to the first three people uh, uh, in the in the hall there. And one guy with kind of a funny long beard and a receding hairline, and a guy with a big shock of white hair and a big toothy grin on his face, and another kind of more more conservative looking guy. And so I introduced myself. Well, the, the funny guy with the long beard was Andrew Weil. I just read his uh, The Natural Mind, and it had totally registered with me that, that uh, probably all animals, humans, not the least of which, have like an innate drive to alter our consciousnesses and to look at the world in different ways based on, on substances that we, we take. And I, I, I loved the book, and, and it, was, it was a real pleasure to meet him, and we chatted for a minute, and I turned to this next gentleman, and he said, well, you know, why are you here? And, and well, you know, it turns out that about five years earlier, I had, as a, as a you know, a young toxicology student, I'd found a, an older project uh, studying uh, sheep poisonings by Phalaris grass in Northern California, Kind of, no one was working on it anymore. But you know, I had this this uh, uh, understanding that uh, uh, dimethyltryptamine and other hallucinogenic compounds in these grasses might have been causing poisonings in these these range animals. And so we, you know, I said, well, you know, I'd been working on this, and, he, and, and and this, of course, was Sasha. And his immediate reaction was, oh, well, then maybe you can answer this. And, I, I've come to realize in the ensuing years that this is a typical reaction of Sasha to just about any new person that he had never met, and uh, so we chatted, you know, very animatedly for you know fifteen or twenty minutes. And I turned to the third gentleman, and uh, he said, "Well, you know, you're interested in analytical chemistry. Uh, you'd probably enjoy visiting my laboratory. I'm, I'm the uh, uh, chief of the Drug Enforcement Administration Analytical Laboratory in San Francisco." Of course, I didn't know that this was Bob Sager, who had already uh, forged a, a, a long-term friendship with Sasha and, and was really kind of uh, at, the, at the verge of being on the outs with the DEA because he actually didn't think that a lot of what the DEA was starting to do was, was useful. And I didn't run into Bob for another 25 years, but uh, when, I, when I met him at a 4th of July party at uh, the Shulgin's place, I said, well, you probably don't remember me, but I certainly remember meeting you, because as soon as you announced who you were and where you worked, I think my face turned white and my pants turned brown. And I also had the thought that either I've really arrived or I'm in trouble now. So in any event, uh, Sasha invited me out to the farm. He, you know, found out that I was a student at, at uh, Cal. He had he had been a an undergraduate and graduate student at uh, at Berkeley, and so they like sort of an instant alumni bond. And uh, uh, so I visited uh, the 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 Shulgin farm for the first time in late 1977. And uh, Sasha was uh, uh, alone at that point. He had not met his wife Anne, who he m- married in 1981. And so he walked me out to the lab and uh, you know, showed me boxes of compounds that he had made. I had had a, a little exposure to his work. Uh, there was a seminal paper in 1969, uh, Structure Activity Relationships of the One-Ring Psychotomimetics. Uh, I had read this paper when I was doing that work on uh, Phalaris grass. It was way over my head, but I could tell that there was really something serious that was happening in, in, uh, in that discussion. So in any event, uh, Sasha and I got to know each other a little bit at that point, 
And then I, I went off still with uh, the idea in mind that the, uh, the, the incipient drug war was uh, uh, an insurmountable barrier to a young scientist interested in psychedelics uh, in, in entering a field where you could seriously do work in that area. So I kind of uh, sidestepped my way into uh, continued work in agricultural uh, research, studying photosynthesis, uh, crop protection, uh, uh, pesticides in the environment. Ended up doing a lot of basic work in uh, uh, vegetation responses to elevated carbon dioxide, kind of sidestepped into environmental chemistry, and, and 30 years went away in a real hurry. But then towards the latter 1990s, early 2000s, uh, I realized that there was kind of a gap in my, uh, my passion for, for work. And uh, I called up Sasha and started chatting again. And, and uh, over the next few years, between repairing his computers and just kind of hanging out and watching how he uh, interacted with his many visitors and uh, uh, you know, learning a little bit more about the, the uh, details of what he'd been working on for 50 years in that funky little lab, we developed kind of a working relationship. And I actually started working with him uh, uh, in, in 2007, uh, Sasha married my wife and I at the farm uh, on 7707. And in the, the midst of uh, a really great dance party that was uh, happening outside, I walked in on a conversation that his wife was having with a um, close, close friend. And uh, they'd been approached by a benefactor who was uh, uh, offering to, to mount a search for a chemist who could help work with. Uh, with Sasha and kind of pick up some of his uh, his effort uh, because he'd lost his eyesight to macular degeneration and uh, really couldn't continue working in the lab. And so my immediate response was, now wait a minute, let me get this straight. You're, you're looking for a chemist to work with Sasha and work on psychedelics here? That would be me. And so uh, to kind of make a long story short, uh, I cut back my other, uh, uh, my day job to, to 50% and uh, about three months later started working half-time at the farm. So uh, where I found things, uh, Sasha had uh, a very checkered career. And here I'm going to kind of uh, fill in a little bit about uh, uh, who Sasha is, who, what, what he did. Uh, the last two talks that were presented tonight focused on uh, a, a, a substance that, that a lot of people know now, uh, MDMA. Sasha was credited, uh, for better or worse, uh, not for inventing MDMA, although he, by, by the time that he kind of rediscovered it, had, had, uh, uh, he was the first to, to synthesize many, many, many compounds that are, that are uh, powerful psychedelics. Uh, he was presented with information from uh, students, really, that, uh, oh, there's this new substance that's uh, kind of out there. This maybe was around 1972, 73 or so. Even the Drug Enforcement Administration was unaware of it. There had been a couple of reports of a, a new substance, uh, a, a substituted uh, methylene dioxyamphetamine. Uh, but there was very little known about it, and certainly nothing known about its uh, psychological effects. So in 1978, uh, Sasha published the first really uh, uh, outline of what MDMA was and how, how it differed from uh, other psychedelic drugs and its effects 
and how it might, in fact, be uh, a useful tool in psychotherapy. So that was 1978. Let's go way back. Uh, to give a sketch of, of Sasha and who he was, uh, he was born in 1925. Uh, he was the only child of a, uh, a father who was a Russian immigrant. He escaped the Bolshevik rev- Revolution by escaping through Siberia and Alaska, coming down into California. Sasha's mom was a, a teacher from, I forget, is it Illinois or Indiana? Anyway, one of the two. They met in Berkeley and uh, Sasha was the product of that union in 1925. He was their only child, and they doted on him, and he was, he was a really a, a prodigy kid uh, in, in kind of uh, going through the papers in the household. Uh, I, I've come to appreciate how much of a prodigy he was. I think he taught himself how to type by the time he was five. To give you an idea... Uh, uh, Sasha uh, finished uh, the little bit of high school that he seemed to need and uh, uh, enrolled at uh, Harvard University at age of 15. Now he hung out at Harvard for about a year and a half never really liking it all that much because he didn't fit in. And I can only imagine, I mean, you know, Harvard seems to be the host of people like, you know, anyone from Timothy Leary to George Bush and Mostly, you know, people who are fairly wealthy and, and uh, you know, maybe are legacies from, from you know, past, past generations. But, you know, a, a smart-ass, extremely bright kid uh, interested in the sciences, probably not a real good match for Harvard. So uh, at age approximately 16 and a half, Sasha enlisted in the Navy and uh, spent the next couple of years, this would be in the uh, sort of middle years of World War II, uh, uh, on a uh, submarine destroyer in the North Atlantic, uh, varying between abject fear and total boredom hunting German submarines. He had one book with him, uh, Castle's Organic Chemistry, uh, which he memorized. And uh, coming back from, uh, from the war, uh, he decided to go back to Berkeley, which is sort of home, home ground for him. And... Uh, Enrolled in an organic chemistry class. This is kind of the, one of the few stories that, that comes through about his, his, his college experience. Uh, you know, got started. They went through their first midterm. And the prof of the class stopped him in the halls one day and said, Shulgin, come here. You know, you, you don't really have to take any of the, the other exams in the class if you don't want. And he said, well, why, why would that be? He said, well... The first midterm scores are in. Uh, the class average was 40%. And you got 100%. So if you want to take the, the test, that's fine. But, you know, just come to the classes. You know, you'll probably learn a little bit that you don't know already. Anyway, to make a long story short, Sasha was a brilliant chemist. He, he excelled, you know, throughout, finished an organic chemistry uh, undergraduate program, then went on to become a, a, a kind of a new, new program, biochemist. Uh, as a PhD student at Berkeley, finished that in 1955. Uh, knocked around, started some clinical laboratories. The, the clinical lab business was really sort of just getting started at that point. So, you know, basic measurements for medical use, uh, uh, you know, blood testing, urine testing, that kind of thing, it was just getting off the ground. So he started a couple of successful laboratories in Berkeley, um, was a research director at uh, BioRad, which is still a going concern, making materials for biotechnology. Uh, by the late 50s, uh, started work at Dow Chemical uh, in their pesticide division in uh, Benicia, California, 
all this is really close to his stomping grounds in the East Bay. Uh, at Dow, he uh, uh, identified a, uh, a waste product from uh, uh, one process that uh, he had a pretty, you know, he had a good intuition that it, it might be uh, a good starting material, a precursor for uh, pesticide that also might be biodegradable, might be uh, broken down quickly in the environment. And both of those things turned out to be true. So he basically helped Dow make their first biodegradable insecticide, a, a carbamate called Zectran. Made them a pile of money. This would have been like late 19, 1959, 1960. Right around that same time, Sasha had his first experience with a compound called 345-trimethoxyphenethylamine, also known as mescaline. He was very impressed with mescaline. Uh, a lot of the effects that, that people now know to be sort of you know classic uh, uh, psychedelic effects, you know, total transformation of your appreciation of color, texture, uh, you know, uh, fundamental transformation of, of your your experience of the outside world and, and you know your your sense of yourself. Uh, all of these things were, were very powerfully delivered to him, and, and he's many times uh, made the remark. You know, I had a, a quarter of a teaspoon of a white crystalline solid that I, I took into my body, and I had this experience. This, this profound experience was not in that white crystalline solid. It was in me. The solid just allowed me to experience what was already there. And what Rick and Alicia talked about earlier you know, is really kind of the same thing, maybe a little different flavor, but really very similar kind of recognition that these these materials are are catalytic to you know they, they let us experience things that are that are maybe hidden but uh, are within us well anyway so at that point in time uh there was no there was no stigma about about psychedelic drugs there was no drug scene uh in fact the the sort of prevailing uh uh thought in the chemistry community was that uh Psychedelic drugs uh, might, in fact, be useful materials to help us understand mental illness. Uh, I've I've found a, a chemi chemistry and engineering news uh, in Sasha's files with a lot of white-coated guys standing around, going, you know, can can chemistry help us understand mental illness? So this was this was uh, uh, very much on the mind of of science at that time. And yet Dow Chemical was really, you know, after the first couple of years, they, they, once, once Sasha produced Zectran, they said, you know, whatever you'd like to work on is fine with us. You know, you've got a lab, you've got a small staff, go for it, and we'll see what, what comes. So in the next couple of years, this would have been again, uh, you know, 59, 60, 61, uh, he started to explore uh, substances that were related to mescaline but uh, were derived from natural products, uh, particularly uh, substances, that, uh, essential oils basically, things that could be isolated from natural products like nutmeg oil, uh, mace, and those, those kinds of, of um, uh, spices, you know, the, the, the candy shop. Um, so MMDA, uh, a number of other variants uh, came out of that work. But Dow eventually uh, sort of surveyed this and, and said, well, you know, when we really look at it, we're, we're, we're not a, a, a pharmaceutical company. We're maybe in, we're, we're interested in pesticides and, and, you know, kind of bulk chemicals. So this is really not our, 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 our bag. And so they parted amicably. 
And by that time, Sasha, I think, had kind of seen the, the writing on the wall, and he had built a small lab at his, his uh, family farm in uh, Lafayette, California. So he started working there, and uh, to make a long story short, in the next uh, you know, roughly 50 years, he produced a couple of hundred compounds that, that we, we know as uh, uh, interesting and useful psychedelics. Uh, started out with variants of uh, mescaline. Uh, one of the first semi-synthetic uh, derivatives of mescaline, uh, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not blessed with a, a, a blackboard where I can start drawing what Sasha lovingly called dirty pictures, uh, you know, to kind of lead the, lead the discussion in that direction. But uh, uh, mescaline is has a, a six-sided ring. It has three. Uh, methoxy groups, that's like three oxygens with methyl groups hanging off, and then there's a, a two-carbon side chain that ends in a, an amino group, so that's that's the, the classical phenyl-ethyl-amine structure. Uh, the first semi-synthetic compound that was sort of based on, on that, that, that framework was a compound that became known as TMA, trimethoxyamphetamine. So the only the variation was that on the side chain, instead of being two carbons, there were now three carbons. There was an alpha-methyl group. Here's the question. Tell you what, anyone who's really interested in dirty pictures, come and talk to me afterwards and I'll draw you a bunch. Great. In any event... Uh, TMA was not one of Sasha's compounds. It was uh, synthesized for the first time in 1947. It was discovered to be psychoactive in 1949. Uh, Sasha made some, tried it. This is much later. Uh, found that it was it, it is much uh, more potent, about twice as potent as mescaline. Mescaline is an interesting compound, classic, wonderful psychedelic, but not very potent. Uh, takes about. 350 milligrams to maybe 500 milligrams to create a full psychedelic experience. Uh, TMA was roughly twice as potent, so maybe somewhere in the 150 milligram range. Sasha says, "Well, it was nice, but it was not friendly." You know, so there there was a, there was the first in indication that these things not only differed in potency, but maybe differed in character. Now, when I was when I was a young guy. Uh, in the late 60s, there was very little information about um, any psychedelic at all. We knew of LSD, mescaline, and psilocybin, but the dogma at that time was that they were, they were all, they basically created the same effect, they differed only in potency and duration. Well, Sasha already by that time had pretty well put to rest that, that there are, there's a wide variety of not only potency, but also character. So anyway, I'll kind of get back to that. So in, in his earliest efforts, Sasha looked at the, the structure of mescaline and TMA and said, okay, well, there's there's a, a, a three, four, five arrangement. There are at least six other arrangements of those methoxy groups around the ring of TMA, mescaline. What happens if we make all those other variants? This is the classic business of a medicinal chemist. You find a molecule that has an action that you're interested in, whether it's 
you know, uh, an ergot alkaloid or uh, salicylic acid that gave us aspirin or an opiate like morphine. You, you start with the basic structure and you start making systematic modifications of it and then figure out, well, did, did those modifications make a stronger drug, uh, a weaker drug? Did they uh, change the character of it? Did they change the pharmacological activity in some fundamental way, creating some new activity that wasn't expected? So this is the, this is the nature of the business of, of medicinal chemistry. So Sasha started with these trimethoxyamphetamines, and one of the, the, the kind of neat discoveries was uh, TMA2, which is 2,4,5-trimethoxyamphetamine. Pretty rare compound. Uh, not very many people have had it. Uh, but uh, it was, again, maybe as much as 10 times more potent than the 3,4,5-trimethoxyamphetamine. And it had more of the sort of buoyant, lovely character of mescaline Kind of the interesting thing. Any of you are aware of uh, Sasha's books, Tikal, Pikal? Okay, there are a couple of people. In uh, in Pikal, which is an acronym, it's it's phenethylamines I have known and loved. Uh, Sasha has uh, ranges of dosage for a lot of these these materials, and uh, for TMA2 in particular, uh, the the dosage range is 12 to 24 milligrams. So. Since by the time that, that he made that compound, which would again have been you know mid-60s, the experience that Albert Hoffman had in the discovery of LSD was already well known. And to just summarize it for those who might not know, uh, Hoffman had been working for you know maybe a decade, 15 years, maybe a little longer, with ergot alkaloids and knew that they were very powerful uh, pharmacologically active compounds. Uh, a lot of them have very specific action uh, that, that's not not psych, psychoactivity at all. Uh, in fact, one of his first uh, uh, discoveries was a, a rational synthesis for a material called ergonovine. Uh, ergonovine has probably saved the lives of maybe a hundred million women, maybe more, since he first figured out how to how to synthesize it rationally. Uh, it has a very specific action on the uterus. Uh, when given to a woman who's uh, hemorrhaging following childbirth, it causes a rapid, strong, and sustained contraction of the uterus that's so strong, it's like pressing on, a, on an open wound. It's enough that it, it, the action of the ergonovine will stop hemorrhage. So in the uh, you know, thousands of years before uh, that, that discovery was systematized, uh, when women died in childbirth, largely it was because of hemorrhage following the actual delivery. Uh, so uh, Hoffman worked out a, a method where he could he could turn any ergot alkaloid, of which there are many, into a basic uh, material and then add on groups to that. And so he would start from uh, something like ergometrine or ergotamine render it down to lysergic acid and then he could synthesize uh, whatever he needed from that. So it was in that process that he was looking for stimulants of the uh, circulatory system and discovered, well, he first synthesized LSD in 1938, it was tested, not found to have the circulatory stimulant effect that he was looking for, it was shelved. So a few years later he had this premonition that you know it really needed to be looked at again, made some had a strange experience one afternoon, not a full LSD experience, but he felt strange, 
came back a week later and took the smallest amount that could be possibly thought to have any effect at all, quarter of a milligram, and of course had a full-blown LSD experience. So that was already well known. That was 1943. Sasha didn't start any of this work until early 1960s. So his, his strategy for discovering new drug activity was to start with very, very tiny doses, you know, maybe on the order of 10 to 25 milli- or micrograms, and then slowly work up to uh, doses where he could start to feel some effect, always looking for uh, untoward uh, somatic effects, you know, changes in, you know, bad effects on blood pressure or pulse rate or, or you know, other, other uh, sort of medical effects. Um, and so with uh, TMA2, he had already been well into that process and was at the point where he wanted to start a 12-milligram experience, took that dose. Um, after an hour, nothing was happening, so he had, had prepared another 12-milligram dose, decided, okay, well, I'll just take that, and about 10 minutes later started to feel the effects of the first dose, so he ended up discovering that he was going to have a very interesting afternoon. And uh, uh, so that, that strategy for uh, discovering activity was already kind of well established. So Sasha went on to discover quite a number of uh, modifications of uh, the, the TMA series, uh, taking away an oxygen here, putting in a sulfur there. Uh, and that, that process went on for basically about three decades. He would work on uh, compounds pretty much in solitude, test them himself um, when he uh, met Anne, his wife, and they got married in 1981 uh, they partnered in this process, so he would try substances, try to establish an activity level if he found the the effects to be desirable, he would share them with his wife, if they concurred that, okay this this is good, there are not any, any bad side effects they had a, what they called the group, which was maybe about a dozen, 15 uh, close friends, mostly middle-aged, serious people, you know, doctors, lawyers, psychiatrists, and they would, uh, they would have Sunday experiences. And so they would bring out you know, whatever the latest was, try to establish dosage ranges, and uh, kind of forge ahead. So it was, it was with that background that uh, Sasha was given MDMA as, as kind of a, a leading uh, uh, substance that that was out there in the environment, but really unreported. And so uh, he discovered the the uh, the right dosage level and and found that it was not a psychedelic, but had a, another type of activity, uh, which we now refer to as antactogen or uh, empathogen. There was a question in the back. Great question. So the, the question is, what was he what was he attempting to achieve? The, 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 the mescaline experience was kind of the, the lead. Uh, so he, he sensed that there was, there was something important here. And uh, I think the motivation was, was kind of pure exploration. You know, why, why do you want to you know, climb Everest or uh, you know, another mountain? To, to see what the experience is like to be there. And since very early on, he discovered that, that it was, there, was, there were not just simple uh, differences in, in potency and duration, but there were, there were very profound differences in the, 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 the character, the qualitative experience that these substances produced. So he became uh, both a, 
uh, a fan and uh, a proponent of, of uh, honest, serious exploration of these substances for their own value. What can we learn from exploring? So, I don't know if, I don't know if that answers or not. Absolutely. So, the, 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 the question is, you know, was, was there a thought of there being therapeutic benefit? Absolutely. Uh, Sasha... Uh, was was very closely allied and, and associated with uh, psychologists and psychiatrists, and they had many deep discussions about how these things could be used to open people, to facilitate internal exploration. I mean, there there are many many drugs that have, you know have been produced by big pharma with the uh, foundation actually that Sasha produced. I mean, the, his work started in uh, uh, really the, the dawn of uh, neurochemistry. Before the mid-1950s, uh, it was really thought that, that uh, uh, mental illness, uh, psychosomatic uh, disease, um, psychological difficulties were, were strictly based on uh, you know, bad upbringing. Maybe you were taken off the mother's breast too early. Uh, maybe your toilet training was bad, but th- there was really no f- no foundation for uh, uh, an appreciation that that neurochemistry uh, could be a, a uh, foundation for um, mental or psychological dif- difficulties or illness. And so it was kind of a shock that uh, it was that serotonin, for instance, was found to not be only uh, a substance in the bloodstream. It, it, it has the name serotonin because it's you know serological has to do with blood. It was first found in red blood cells. Uh, when it was first found in the brain, it was a, a, a total shock. And now we realize that uh, the, the serotonin, as as a fundamental neurotransmitter, is uh, uh, at at the root of many of our most basic drives: uh, appetite, wakefulness, and sleep, uh, sexuality. So the, the recognition that psychedelic drugs were structurally related to things like serotonin, dopamine, epinephrine really kind of emerged uh, very closely allied to discoveries of the first psychedelic drugs starting with LSD, which of course has structural related, uh, relation both to serotonin and to dopamine. So Sasha's work was uh, fundamental medicinal chemistry but it was it was targeted at trying to understand what the the relationship between uh, chemical structure and psychological effect were, and this is really well in advance of any appreciation of uh, serotonin receptors or the whole concept of uh, drug receptors or neurotransmitter receptors. So much of Sasha's work actually uh, sort of burgeoned into what we now uh, know as neuropharmacology. So you know his his uh, his legacy is is uh, is broad. So at any event, um, uh, to make a long story short, uh, Sasha and and his wife have had a lot of presentations at uh, at meetings like this, and they they tend to speak much more briefly than I just have, and try to open things to questions. And uh, uh, maybe I'll just kind of give a little sketch of where we are right now uh, at at, uh, uh, at the farm. Uh, as I said, I started working there in 2007. Uh, first few months uh, were pretty much exclusively in, in the laboratory. Uh, 
uh, kind of bringing things uh, to, to a, a more sound housekeeping uh, status to where we could actually start doing some chemistry again. Sasha had, as I mentioned before, lost his eyesight. And uh, with elderly folks, uh, housekeeping kind of goes as eyesight goes. So uh, uh, I got to the point where we could start doing some chemistry, but then by uh, late 2007, uh, Sasha asked me if I'd be willing to work on um, a writing project that he'd had uh, kind of in the, in the works for a while, but they were a little bit stalled on. Uh, so make a long story short, again, in three, uh, after three years, we uh, published another major book, uh, the Shulgin Index, uh, Psychedelic Phenethylamines and Related Compounds. Uh, this is more of a reference work, so it's kind of aimed at uh, scientists, sort of a one-stop uh, review of uh, probably about 50 years' worth of uh, research into uh, psychedelic phenethylamines, psychedelic uh, amphetamines, and some more recent compounds. <clears throat> it's uh, designed a little bit as a, as a hybrid between like the Merck Index, for those who are familiar with that, which is uh, a general reference for organic chemists <coughs> and uh, uh, the kind of uh, review style that you'd find in like the annual review of uh, you know, physiology or plant physiology. So uh, once we wrapped that up, about 815 pages worth and uh, lots of tables and cross-references, uh, we went back to work in the lab and uh, we started to kind of uh, uh, identify tracks of work that uh, looked like they could have some legs and not uh, uh, get us in too deep a trouble with the Drug Enforcement Agency. Uh, so Sasha had a DEA license for quite a number of years, actually uh, was, was given awards from the DEA in their early years, uh, helping them uh, both identify substances that uh, that they didn't have the ability to uh, uh, unequivocally identify, uh, suggesting analytical methods. Um, but as as their uh, agency evolved and their uh, their politics evolved, uh, they they uh, began to look at at his sort of more open-ended, uh, open science, open communication uh, strategy. Uh, a little bit of scants, and so uh, they kind of came down on him pretty hard in 1993, a couple of years after the publication of uh, PCAL, uh, particularly since they had busted a lot of labs where they found PCAL on the shelf. So it was sort of an indicator that uh, his influence was not necessarily purely academic. In any event, uh, they, they uh, harassed him a bit and uh, fined him uh, $24,000 for uh, uh, inadequate administrative controls over uh, drug samples that he had received uh, for analysis and uh, in, in the, the dust up from, from that whole experience he uh, uh, voluntary, voluntarily relinquished his uh, Schedule 1 license so uh, since that time uh, he kind of delved back into natural products chemistry which uh, kept him away from any controlled substances and I've kind of continued some of that. So I've got, uh, uh, I've picked up a little bit of his tryptamine research, uh, which would be uh, new chemistry, uh, looking at new compounds. Uh, also uh, started to do some natural products chemistry. I have a colleague in uh, Texas who's working on uh, conservation of uh, uh, peyote. Uh, peyote is, is uh, an interesting schedule one plant it's the uh, along with cannabis the only schedule one plant 
but at the same time, it's received uh, state sanction and federal sanction for uh, use in religion for religious purposes by the Native American Church, uh, and that's withstood uh, both. Um, uh, litigation in court and also uh, legislation. So the Native American folks can consume that that plant, but unfortunately, they've uh, really consumed a bit too much, and uh, it's uh, now an endangered plant. And uh, the although it's it's still desired and it's the principal medicine of the the Native American Church. Uh, there is a very real possibility that uh, continued harvesting uh, may in fact wipe it out. So uh, my colleague Martin Terry and I are working on kind of different aspects of uh, how to conserve this going into the future. He's been working on basic population ecology of the plant in the field, uh, looking at how harvesting practices affect the reproduction and uh, 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 survival of older plants. Uh, And I've been helping him work on uh, the chemistry of uh, mescaline in uh, uh, both seedling plants and in regrowth uh, to kind of uh, establish a foundation that will let us uh, look forward to a time when uh, production by cultivation may be legally possible. It's not legally sanctioned today, uh, and it's actually not even desired by the older folks in the Native American church. It's a matter of faith uh, on their part that... uh, uh, you know the, the 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 concept is that uh, God put it here for us when we need it it will be there so the older folks really don't don't have any uh, uh, particular desire to see uh, any any uh, controlled cultivation take place but the younger folks are open to that so I kind of kid people and say well you know like as soon as we get to the state where we can we can legally start to discuss peyote agronomy We'll have to start thinking about greenhouses on top of all those Indian casinos. They've got uh, they've got all the security. They've got the real estate. Uh, now all we have to do is have a, a planting situation that uh, can sustain the production. So that's one project. Uh, we've also uh, had a long-term interest in lysergamide chemistry. Uh, just in the last year, we've started to work with uh, a group of patients that uh, suffer from cluster headache. Uh, for those of you who have not heard of it, cluster headache is, is probably one of the more uh, intractable, troublesome neurological disorders. Uh, it, it's pretty rare, much more rare than, than uh, uh, migraine and much more uh, uh, debilitating. Uh, they're called clusters because they, they occur in windows of time during the year uh, that can last many weeks to months. And during those, those cluster windows, uh, you can have anywhere from 3 to 18 of these attacks a day. And they're described as the most excruciating pain that humans endure. They're sometimes called suicide headaches because people that experience these things, uh, and, and it's about a, a 5 or 6 to 1 uh, ratio of men to women that have these things, uh, they, they are, are so severe, so Prolonged and so so uh, uh, incapacitating that 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 people are willing to just end their lives because they can't deal with it. So kind of fortuitously, in the late 1990s, uh, there was a cluster headache sufferer in Scotland who had a dose of well, now it's kind of lost in time, either psilocybin or LSD, right around the time that his cluster period would have start started, and no cluster, the whole the whole cluster cycle did not occur. 
So he wondered, well, what happened? Why didn't this happen? One of the, the, the kind of strange aspects of cluster headaches is that they're, they're, for many, many people, they're quite predictable. They'll be like, oh, two weeks after the summer solstice, my cluster will start. And that, that um, uh, predictability is kind of a hallmark of this, of this disorder. Uh, so that, that patient zero experimented a bit, found that, that oh, in fact, the psychedelic and it seemed to have this blocking action. And so by the, the middle 2000s, uh, this word got out in the cluster headache community and people were starting to experiment. Uh, a, a patient advocacy organization called Cluster Busters uh, formed and they approached some uh, researchers at Harvard uh, who in, in 2010 uh, did an experiment with uh, a related drug or a drug related to LSD Kind of on a on a dare almost from Harvard. Uh, so these these one one psychiatrist was working at Harvard, another German colleague from Hanover, approached the the staff at uh, McLean Hospital at Harvard, and they said, "Well, we want to do this LSD study with uh, cluster headache because we think it could be a little breakthrough drug to to you know be you know a, 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 a very unusual preventative for this this awful condition." And uh, where it was described, they, they had a meeting with uh, you know one of these oak paneled uh, conference rooms with a big table and lots of very cushy chairs. And so they said, oh, "Okay, we want to do this LSD study." And uh, one of the older executives leans forward and say, "You know, we had Leary here." So to make a long story short, they were so skittish about the possibility of any LSD research being done at Harvard that they, they, they pleaded, is there, is there nothing else that's even structurally related that might have any possibility of, of working, or can you eliminate that so that we can, we can go to our uh, institutional review board and say, well, you know, we, we've, we've tried everything else that's, that's structurally related, and this is, this is our only alternative is to go back to LSD. So... One of the two uh, psychiatrists proposing the study uh, knew of a drug called 2-bromo-LSD, or BOL-148, an old drug. It had been first synthesized by Albert Hoffman and company, uh, patented in 1950, experimented with a little bit as a possible migraine drug, didn't pan out. He said, well, we know of this drug. It has, it has some pharmacological uh, similarities to LSD, but it doesn't produce a psychedelic effect, even at doses 1,000 times higher than LSD, no psychedelic effect. So they tried this on a group of, very small group of cluster headache patients in Germany, and in fact, it worked as well, maybe even better than either LSD or psilocybin. So unfortunately, uh, the patient population that they're trying to address with this is just large enough that the the FDA cannot sweep this into the Orphan Drug Act, which allows drugs that might help patients suffering from a, an illness who number 200,000 and below in the United States. Under the Orphan Drug Act, uh, substances can be uh, the, the, the clinical testing can be lessened to a, a, a very dramatic degree, so drugs can be mobilized into clinical experimentation more rapidly. There are probably on the order of 300, 350,000 cluster headache patients, so unfortunately they blew that qualifier, and uh, 
the whole project kind of stalled. So uh, the Cluster Busters organization who initially brought that product or project to Harvard uh, approached us, and we are now working on uh, uh, basically synthesis methods to discover alternative methods for, for manufacturing that drug. And uh, uh, there have been a very few patients that have uh, had some of that substance, and the, the uh, prognosis looks very good. Uh, the kinds of results that we've heard back are that, uh, uh, you know, my, my husband was able to sleep through the night in his own bed for the first time in years, uh, that kind of thing. So it's uh, very hopeful. We don't know exactly how it's going to go, but we're uh, continuing to try to, to use our chemistry expertise and uh, kind of the, the history of what Sasha did and the, the kind of unique uh, environment of the farm to uh, push research forward. So... Uh, he was a, a tremendously prolific scientist uh, for, you know, on the order of 50 years. Uh, there may be on the order of 150 to 200 psychedelics that he produced that uh, are, are kind of known. Uh, there are a number of other compounds that uh, uh, were not psychedelics but may have other uh, potential benefit. Some have actually been uh, patented and, and tested for use in uh, treatment of what we now would call Alzheimer's disease. Uh, so there's a lot of work to kind of bring his uh, his legacy forward, and that's kind of what's falling to me. So uh, we're trying to uh, kind of organize our, our forces to uh, uh, digitize his work, create an archive that's accessible to other researchers, and uh, keep a little bit of chemistry going out in the lab. So that's kind of my basic presentation. I'd, I'd love to answer any questions that you might have. So, um, go to it. Uh, okay, the question is, uh, was Sasha's first experience with synthetic or organic mescaline? Now, the, first off, if organic mescaline, mescaline that's isolated from natural sources, uh, often has other things present. Uh, if, if you really did a good job and isolated mescaline from an organic source and there was nothing else present but mescaline itself and you compared that with synthetic mescaline, there theoretically should be no difference except the isotopic composition. So uh, that's, that said, uh, you can get a, a, near, you know, a nearly crystalline product from peyote or from trichoceros or you know, a number of other mescaline-containing plants, and it could be very you know, qualitatively different than pure mescaline. So can't answer that question. It, at the time, it probably was synthetic, but I, I'm not sure 100%. Uh, actually, Sasha didn't. If, you, if you're familiar with his uh, uh, second book, Tikal, uh, there are some little hints in there that some of the methods actually were not things that Sasha did, and I only kind of figured this out after working in his lab a bit. Uh, there are some particular techniques, particularly purification methods, that Sasha never did. So some of that work was done in other labs and probably principally by uh, Dave Nichols. Uh, David was uh, uh, an early acolyte student of Sasha's, but he really focused on lysergamides almost exclusively. Well, he, he, I, I can't say that. He did a, a tremendous amount of lysergamides and really advanced our understanding of structure activity relationships with those compounds. Uh, but that was not a principal interest of Sasha's. Sasha worked primarily with uh, phenethylamines and uh, the more simple tryptamines. I made quite a bit of progress with those. There's something over here? Yes. 
Oh no, oh no, 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 there are always more. Uh, in fact, um, I've got a colleague in, uh, in Liverpool who's uh, kind of hooked in with the um, sort of early warning system that uh, the EU has in place to, to uh, ha- analyze new, new substances that come out in kind of the, the gray drug market. Uh, in the past couple of years in particular, there have been a lot of um, uh, cathinone derivatives. So in the states, there's been a little little bit of interest in in what what have been called bath salts compounds. Uh, so uh, in the there there were three that were uh, scheduled just this last summer. Um, well, pardon me, summer a year ago. Uh, mephedrone, which is uh, four methyl methcathinone, uh, a substance called methylone, which is actually one of Sasha's compounds. That'd be the beta keto. Um, uh, analog of MDMA and another substance called methylene dioxypyrovalerone MDPV um, uh, and, and okay so those three were, were scheduled but there uh, my, my, my colleague in Liverpool informs me that there have been in just 2012 85 new cathinone derivatives that have shown up in the European marketplace uh, a number of them never before reported in the literature anywhere a number of them uh, kind of gleaned from uh, you know earlier pharmaceutical you know patent applications and and uh, uh, reports, uh, but never really extensively experimented with in humans. So, um, but but in terms of even those core structures, uh, there are even substances that Sasha made which he never actually worked up in terms of personal exposure. So uh, it's still a kind of a, a wide open field. Uh, and the way that things have kind of developed historically from, say, you know, the late 1950s through maybe the mid-1980s, the only way to demonstrate that uh, any of those substances had activity was to have humans test them. There were no useful animal models at that time. Uh, the whole concept of, like, a receptor-binding assay or a... a uh, neurotransmitter reuptake assay had, hadn't hadn't emerged yet. Those kinds of technologies really are, are sort of spin-offs from the Human Genome Project because uh, we now know how to clone genes. We can clone genes that that produce the proteins that are in fact receptors, and so we now have a, a wide variety of uh, you know kind of you know in the test tube kinds of tools that didn't exist before the mid 1980s. So the way the whole uh, scientific literature developed there there was maybe maybe 20 years worth of structure activity relationships that was backed by human uh, reports of, of activity and then after the mid 80s uh, these new techniques became available but also journals became very skittish about reporting uh, human exposures so the two kind of combined and so now we've got maybe 25 years worth of uh, very detailed molecular data about how these things interact with with receptors, but uh, almost no new human exposure data. So it's kind of a funny dichotomy, you know, historically. Yes. Thank you. Um, So we've already discussed the tryptamines and the phenylethylamines, um, and you mentioned cathinones, although I'm not sure if they'd be considered classical psychedelics or and then there are it's a good point. dissociatives, the ketamine, methoxetamine, 
family, again, debatably psychedelic in that strict sense. Are there any other major groups? Well, the, there, uh, these base structures that you mentioned, the, the phenethylamines and the tryptamines, seem to crop up in, in a lot of other areas. So, for instance, something like ibogaine uh, is, is, has, has a tryptamine core. There's an, there's an indole structure embedded in, in ibogaine. Um, in terms of, of new substances, you know, like with, with entirely different structures, uh, they they keep cropping up, but it's this is this is not an area that's really been able to develop because there's been such uh, a, a social uh, rejection of them as being valuable substances to, to investigate. Uh, just in the last couple of years, uh, there have been some new derivatives of both phenethylamines and and tryptamines, uh, the uh, the N-bone derivatives, where uh, an extra ring is added out at the end of the side chain. Uh, Those actually have have been uh, quite a surprise. Uh, In in the the earlier development of all of these uh, substances, Substitutions out on the, the the side chain end, like off the the amine end of phenethylamines, all but exclusively destroyed activity or you know created some other other kind of activity. But with these new substances that really were only discovered in the last three or four years, where an extra ring is added out there, uh, they are now known to be uh, slightly more. Uh, specific serotonin 2A receptor agonists, so they're more, a little bit more like LSD in their effect. Um, although there, 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 there are some interesting kind of toxic, toxicological uh, aspects of these that uh, have have yet to be investigated thoroughly. Uh, so the N bones, uh, you know, like, uh, you'll you'll hear reference to 25I, 25C, 25B. N-bone. These are N-methoxybenzyl derivatives of what would be 2CB, 2CI, 2CC. Uh, these substances are uh, where, where, say, 2CB is active maybe in the 12 to 40 milligram range. The, the N-bone derivative is probably active at under a milligram. And there, there is a, uh, there's the, you know, a suggestion out there from just sort of anecdotal reports that uh, taking larger doses uh, could be very problematic. And there, there are so few reports that we can't even, I think, really say what the nature of uh, toxicological uh, uh, problems might be. So, you know, like we just really need to um, emphasize caution in, in uh, testing any of those substances. Okay, thank you. Um, so you mentioned toxicological problems with larger doses. Is there any indication that at the active doses they might be tox- toxic? I well, appreciate that, you can't an, know at this stage. Yeah, that's an excellent question. That's an excellent question. Actually, I was asked this a little earlier uh, with respect to, you know, what, are, there, are there long-term negative effects of, of psychedelics? Uh, there was just a paper uh, published within the last 10 days uh, in the Public Library of Science, PLOS One, um, by two researchers who did a, a larger, uh, a, a quite, a, quite a large horizontal study. I think they, they looked at over 130,000 uh, individuals to assess the, the kind of background uh, accessing and need for mental health services. 
And of those 135,000, they identified around 30,000, I believe is the number, who had some experience with psychedelics. And the, the you know, abstract take-home message was that there was no evidence that ex- long-term exposure to psychedelic drugs uh, had any uh, effect on increased need for mental health services, and there, in fact, may have been uh, you know, a, a sort of sub-statistically significant uh, indication that there might have been benefit like you know less less need for uh, mental health intervention uh, with psychedelics exposure that said um, it's possible for people to have a hard time if they take substances that they don't know or in circumstances that where they they're not comfortable or feel like they they don't have you know it's not a supportive environment and 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 uh, or they may not know the dosage uh, and this this goes back, you know, a long way uh, into the the sort of modern era of experimenting with uh, uh, experimentation with psychedelic drugs. We, we we need to know set and setting. Uh, in other words, you know, what's your what's your expectation of what the experience is going to be like? Uh, what's your uh, environment uh, in which you're going to experiment with the substance? And I would go one step further. There's there's. Uh, Unfortunately, been a, a, a tremendous lack of real solid understanding of, of what a substance is and how much you're taking, and those those things unfortunately are, are kind of un, uh, untoward uh, byproducts of the uh, the drug war. As long as there's uh, you know everything is underground, no one really knows what and how much you're taking. And these are, this is a very unfortunate uh, consequence. Yes? Uh, I've not personally. Uh, uh, my, my first, actually, you know, getting back to this question of, of known, known substances at known dosages, uh, back in the early 1970s when I was uh, doing work on, on range grass toxicity by tryptamines, I had my first, uh, it was the first ability uh, to... Uh, take pure dimethyltryptamine at a known dosage, and uh, it was it was really kind of a turning point in my relationship with the the whole business of exploring with psychedelics. I had had uh, you know street street acid and, and other substances before that, but um, uh, it it's it's a completely different thing to know exactly what's going on or what's at least what's going in. What's going on may be another question. <laughs> Yes, another question. Yes, hi. Uh, so uh, we haven't touched on it, but if it's too personal, we could not. But how is Sasha doing health-wise? Okay. Well, it's kind of a difficult thing to answer. Um, for, for any of you in the audience who, who have seen Sasha speak uh, in the past, uh, he, he was the most captivating personality, you know, Extremely loquacious, verbal, funny, uh, you know, broad interests, uh, you know, a musician, uh, you know, interested in politics. Okay, so starting in 2009, uh, health effects started to, like, rear their heads. Uh, he had a, uh, a need for a heart valve replacement. Uh, and we were warned that in the elderly, uh, heart valve replacements often predispose a uh, patient to cognitive decline. Uh, 
so that happened, and then within a year, uh, Sasha developed uh, uh, sort of a, a secondary cardiovascular collapse in one of his legs. So this showed up as wounds that, that would not heal, uh, and uh, basically the circulation in that leg was so bad that there was a threat that he might, might have to have it amputated. Uh, finally, some uh, physicians kind of within the circle closed in and uh, very aggressively treated him, and uh, they were able to avoid amputation. But during that treatment, he was on a trip across the Bay Bridge to uh, have a doctor's appointment and suffered a minor stroke. So the stroke unfortunately affected his speech centers. And so today, I would say, we would say that Sasha is, is stable. Uh, he is experiencing dementia. So uh, his, his short-term memory processing, processing you know, current events into working memory is uh, severely uh, impacted. Uh, he is ambulatory, so uh, he's able to walk, but he basically requires 24-hour care. Uh, whenever I'm out at the farm uh, and I'm working in the lab, Sasha comes out and spends time with me in the lab. And I do everything that I possibly can to keep him engaged, whether it's yakking at him about left-wing politics or putting on Grateful Dead or playing classical music. I try to keep him as engaged as I'm able. And uh, he still cracks a lot of really corny jokes, and they all seem to be pretty relevant to what's going on conversationally. So uh, he's he's impaired, but he's still with us. So I hope that answers. Okay. Any other questions? Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being able to speak with you. Thank you, Paul. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Before I go on, I first want to emphasize a fact that Paul just touched on, and that is, not only are there an ever-increasing number of new psychoactive substances hitting the street, and not only does one have to be extremely careful about the source and purity of these compounds, But you should also pay very close attention to the fact that these new substances are also becoming considerably more powerful, which means that smaller doses are the new standard. And while I may sound like a broken record, the best advice you'll ever hear in these podcasts is that before, long before, you ever consider testing one of these substances yourself, you owe it to yourself, your family, and your friends to get all of the latest information about the substance from Arrowid. That's E-R-O-W-I-D dot org, Arrowid dot org. And without any exceptions, it is the best and most reliable source of information about these substances that you're going to be able to find. Now, uh, to add a brief footnote to what we just heard Paul say about uh, Sasha's current physical condition, well, a couple of days ago, I was talking with Gene Stolroff, who, I should add, is one of the last surviving members of the study group that the Shulgans worked with in their study of the compounds listed in PCOL and TCOL. And Gene told me that in recent conversation, Anne Shulgan told her that a couple of times each week they help Sasha get to a nearby coffee shop where he sits and tells jokes with a few of his friends. Apparently his sense of humor remains completely intact, and for those of us who know Sasha, we generally rate his sense of humor as, well, maybe his most enduring trait. 
for my own favorite story about Sasha, well, you've already heard it if you've uh, either watched the video or heard my podcast titled Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate. Anne and Sasha Shogun, uh, in my mind, are two very remarkable people, and our world has been greatly enhanced by the work that they and a few of their closest friends have done. And a huge thank you also goes out to Paul Daly. Uh, without his dedication and selfless work, uh, well, maybe some of Sasha's work would have been lost. So thank you so much, Paul, for everything you're doing. And uh, speaking of thank yous, I want to extend my sincere thanks to the 212 or so fellow Saloners who rose to the occasion and made donations that uh, collectively will ensure that these podcasts continue through the end of February 2015, and uh, most likely well beyond that. But for now, I don't have to do any more thinking about how long I'm going to uh, keep podcasting from here in the salon. We're uh, here for another year at least, for sure. Now, it's going to take me most of April to uh, send personal emails to each of our donors, but uh, don't give up on me. I'll be doing a few each day, but I don't want to uh, just send out a group message. Uh, well, particularly since I have to uh, confirm with each of you how you want your name to appear on our uh, sponsor's webpage. Also, uh, for our saloners who contributed $45 or more, I'll be confirming the address to which I'll be sending your USB thumb drive. And on that drive will be the first 400 podcasts from the salon. And since this is 394, I guess, <laughs> I'd better get busy and get the next six podcasts out as soon as I can. Also, uh, those drives will have about 100 of my favorite Terrence McKenna sound bites. Uh, and it looks like all of that's going to just about fill a 16 gigabyte thumb drive. And I'll do my best to get it out shortly after my 400th podcast, uh, which means that you should expect your drives uh, sometime in June. Uh, maybe before, if I don't get uh, too lazy when spring fever hits. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>